Wildling Press presents How Do I Book? perspectives and learn to get a little wild every once in a while. Today you're with Mike and I am excited because I have a special guest with me. I have Jamie Zachariah, the upcoming author of Lavender Speculation, which is a book being released by Wilding Press in October 17 of 2023. Hi, Jamie. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. And before we get started, can you please let me know your pronouns? Oh, she, her is good. Thank you. And just if you could give us a quick plug of your upcoming book, not too much because we want to have you back on in the future to talk more about it. So just a teaser for our listeners. Sure. It's um, it's rather an eclectic collection. It's an anthology of short stories. Some are microfiction and drabble. Some are a bit longer. And they're all various genres of speculative fiction, horror, dark fantasy, fairy tales, drama. And many of them are specifically queer as well. So it's kind of a miscellaneous collection that I dare you to check out. What made you want to write queer horror? Oh, gosh. I think because that's what I like to read and that's what I like to watch. And, you know, I grew up in with horror, first with the movies and then into books. From Goosebumps to Stephen King, my mother was really into horror and Halloween and got me into it. And then I sort of came to terms with my identity as a queer woman. And I kept thinking, I wish I could see people like me in these stories. So I figured I'll just make it myself. That's awesome. Yeah, I will say I'm also a pretty huge uh, Stephen King fan, and I grew up with a mom who read a lot of horror and thriller as well, so that was impressed upon me, so I can relate. What um, books do you have that have inspired you to write in this genre? Anything specifically? Oh, there's been so many inspirations. I feel like I pull a lot from a lot of different things, including a lot of daily life occurrences, which is weird. Mm-hmm. I like to look at things that have happened to me and think, what if it was just a little bit spookier? But in regards to which books and authors have really inspired me and influenced me, I have to start with Shirley Jackson. She is my favorite. I mean, I've read all of her books now, I think, but I have to say The Haunting of Hill House was the one that just blew me away, that just got me addicted to this gothic, subtle horror with clear undertones. And I love reading it and rereading it and discussing it with people because it's so layered. And if I could just have like one-tenth of the talent of Shirley Jackson, I would be happy. I've read The Haunting of Hill House actually for the first time a couple years ago, and I was just absolutely enthralled with it. I thought it was really good. And we actually have a future episode coming up, and I think it's releasing on Halloween this year, where I am going to read The Lottery by Shirley Jackson and then have a discussion on it. So we might have to have you back. That's fantastic. I mean, perhaps I'm biased, but to me, The Lottery is the best short story of all time. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read it yet, and I've had uh, I've just read a couple different things. And of course, I went to Wikipedia, and I know it's always not the best source of information, but it was just kind of neat to see different things where they're talking about how people were so affected by it when it came out that they were like canceling their subscriptions to the newspaper that it was printed in. And so that just makes me want to read it more. Oh, yeah. And nobody wants to write something that's forgettable, right? So and Shirley Jackson definitely doesn't. And that's something that I aspire to do. Today, like our main focus is going to be on the queer intersection of horror and the genre itself. 
And coming into this, I really thought that I knew a lot about it, but then I realized I know a lot about the horror genre in cinema and queer culture and not so much about the books. But I think they might align a little bit, so we shall see. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to ask you, why do you think queer people are so drawn to the horror genre? Oh, gosh, I love this question because the simple answer is just the feeling of otherness that a lot of queer people feel and grow up feeling. And that otherness is recognized in the monster. And I say that with quotations because not everything is a, a monster in, a, in an animalistic form that we're thinking. But the villain, the ghost, the what have you that is the antagonist of the story, that's scary. And scary to themselves and scary to others. And for so long and to this day, unfortunately, queer people and the queer community has been scary to the general public. Unfortunately so. Right. The ones that challenge the norm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what are some things that you have noticed about queer characters in the horror genre? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what you mentioned before about film and TV, it does mirror literature because it's all pop culture and expression. And I think there's similar trends in that, first of all, it started out very subtle, right? We had queer coding, things that were queer, but only if you knew to look for them, things that maybe went completely over the heads of general audience members. And then nowadays, obviously, we can create content that is explicitly queer, but that wasn't always the case. So the ability to recognize queerness has definitely grown. But even more than that, in the beginning, I feel like all queerness had to be villainous and punished. Queers did not survive. Queers were never allowed to be the heroes. Um, there's the trope, bury your gaze, right? You could show queerness as long as they were defeated by the heterosexual agenda at the end. Now, of course, things are different. We've gone from seeing only villainous queers to queer characters representing all types of characters. So anti-heroes, heroes, everyone. It's not just queers bad. And it's also not like queers hidden. So, you know, we get a lot more variety of just showing normal people with all different flaws to being allowed to be their true self. Good point, for sure, to show that we have evolved. We have a far way to go for our representation, but we have definitely evolved through cinema and through literature quite a bit. I wanted to go down a path where we discussed different types of monsters found in literature and their alignment with queer culture. I kind of thought we could start with vampires first. Mm, yes. I was going to bring up Bram Stoker. Yeah, I love Dracula. I'm a huge fan of the novel. And I admit I don't know much about Bram Stoker's life, so I can't speak to that. But whenever I read that novel or watch any of the many adaptations based on it, I always can't help but find myself thinking that Lucy is a queer woman. Or even if not mm-hmm. queer, she is defying the conventional female roles of the time or wants to. And that defiant personality, in, in my mind, queerness, is ultimately what leads to her downfall and her death. Whether this is something Bram Stoker did on purpose, I can't say. But that's something that I have evaluated from. And I think many others feel the same. There's a lot of people ship Lucy and Nina, if you will. I can totally see that. Yeah, I think Bram Stoker's Dracula and interpretation of Dracula is very queer <laughs> because I've read before that Bram Stoker may have been a repressed homosexual and he had spent a lot of time like letting Walt Whitman know how much he thought about him. So there's these different things that I've wondered before if Dracula was actually like the manifestation of Bram Stoker's repression. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, look at Dracula's relationship with Jonathan, right? He fights the brides off because he's mine. It's very, very erotic, very homoerotic even. It's very coded. Yes. There's a lot of fluid sexuality underneath all of the characters, I think, in that novel, which is fantastic. So are there any vampires that you would like to discuss or any novels that you like to discuss that involve vampires that you feel have uh, moments of queer eroticism or just queer coding in general? Well, yeah, I mean, I have to mention Carmilla, right? Joseph Sheridan Lace Manu. 
which it was a it's a novella and it came out before Dracula did. I have never heard of it. Oh my gosh, you have to read Carmilla. Please tell me. It's my ugh, one of my favorites, and I think it's so interesting that it predates Dracula. It might even be technically the first long form vampire piece of literature because there were some short stories before that. But Carmilla is basically about a young woman and a young girl who comes to live with her, who may not be what she seems, and I don't want to give anything away. But it's basically a female vampire, and it's never explicitly said, but it's very very coded that she's not only preying on her new friend in a blood way, but like in a sexuality way that she's queer and the queerness between Carmilla and Laura that is coded or subtle in the original novella has exploded throughout time in various adaptations. I can't think of a single modern one that doesn't include explicit queerness between the two. And I think that's very obvious to see now reading the text. It could be that the author knew he was writing it as a queer storyline, but because she's the villain and she's going to be destroyed by the patriarchy, that it's okay. Whereas nowadays we look at it and we're kind of like, well, we kind of want them to be together. We kind of want them to live happily ever after, even though she's the villain. Oh yeah, I'm going to add that to my to-be-read list now. Absolutely. I have to read that one. You have to, yes. I, I think that there's a huge connection between queerness and vampirism. It's, mm-hmm. It kind of goes back to what we were saying with the monster, the other, right? Because vampires, they look like humans, but they don't. And they act like humans, but they don't. They're different. They're more sexy, more dangerous. And I think that subtly, that's how a lot of people view queer people, right? They're they're like us, but they're different. They could They could hurt you or they can pull you away from normal society. And I think that's why there's such a parallel between queer identities and vampirism. Another classic is Interview with a Vampire, Anne Rice's Tale, which came out in the 80s. I think that was probably the first explicitly, and I say explicit based on, I think it's explicit, some people might argue otherwise, explicitly gay vampire novel. And I think modern adaptations have leaned into the to gay this for sure. I was coming of age myself when the movie came out. <laughs> and I remember being like, wow, this this is great. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is yeah, so gay I, and amazing. You you can see it. You can see it. You would yeah. have to be trying really hard, I think, not to see it. And I want to say it's Lestat and is it Louis? Mm-hmm. I keep having friends and one of them sent it to me right before this started, which I thought was funny and why it's fresh in my mind. But I have people keep sending me this meme and it's of Lestat and Louis. It says, happy pride month to these two and their bullshit. <laughs> Every time someone says it to me, I find it just as funny. <laughs> oh my gosh, the melancholy between those characters it's a little too much for my taste but it's a brilliant piece of work and i definitely consider it a classic yeah for sure another creature or monster in the world that i feel is queer coding that i'd love to hear your opinions and thoughts on is frankenstein's monster oh i love frankenstein too i mean mary shelley what a icon for female writers for the entire speculative fiction genre and you know I think a lot of people have talked about how the book was inspired in many different aspects of her life um, losing her mother losing her children losing her husband various points of her life and um, the things that she dealt with but I also think it's pretty queer and I think it's especially queer if we're talking about the films in the sequel uh, Bride of Frankenstein by director James Whale who is openly gay and in the 30s that was like not easy to do. That was a bold move. Um, And I think that film takes the queerness of Frankenstein and ups it to another level. And I I would love to have been in the theater when that movie came out in the, I don't know, 30s or whenever and have interpreted it with the the mindset of what it was like back then. I wonder what I would have thought. Yeah, because that was definitely during the time of, I believe it was called the Hayes Code that came out, H-A-Y-S. And that was like written by people so that 
to basically make sure that films were as heteronormative as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, it kind of predates censorship, but it was, you know, its own, it, it was censorship. Yeah. So they had to do their best with that film to show you these two men <laughs> who wanted to create a child together. And the child mm-hmm. was the Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, the Hays Code. I think it's so interesting that the things that were allowed to get by, like like I said before, you're allowed to show queerness only insofar that it was obviously the villain and obviously defeated. I think that probably audiences were still happy to see some kind of representation, but James Will was a pioneer for just saying, I'm going to do it. And and I believe that the two men who cre- who played the two leads were openly queer as well. All of that is so risky. And the movie objectively is amazing. And then you add all of this important representation that it brings. And it's just, it's a great example of breaking barriers. Even if it seems like a small step forward at the time, it was definitely not small. I think the whole Frankenstein story from beginning to end is really just about you can't make somebody else. And to try and force someone else to be something, anything, is always going to backfire. Mary Shelley wanted to be a writer. She was going to be a writer. You can't force her to be, to not write if she wanted to write. If someone is queer, they're going to be queer. You can't force them not to be. And I think that that is a message that people, queer and non, relate to. And that's part of why the Frankenstein story and all of its sequels are still so popular. So in the queer horror genre, I want to make my to-be-read list even longer. So I would love to hear some books that you recommend. There are so many. And admittedly, there are so many more that I haven't read. And I also have to say that I am a queer woman who identifies as someone who likes other queer women. So I've read mostly books that fall into that subgenre. And my favorites tend to be all written by and for queer women. And I apologize for not being more inclusive. But, you know, for anyone listening who has read other aspects of the queer horror genre, I would love to hear recommendations on those. But because that is what I identify with and what I love, that tends to be what I read. And I definitely have some favorites like on my to recommend list. So the first one is Into the Drowning Deep by Mira Grant. So I'm also a marine biologist and science communicator by day. So this book combines horror, queerness, science, and killer mermaids. Oh, my gosh. If you're not sold, then I don't know what to say. (laughs) Right. Then we're just going to end this podcast right now. Um, yeah, that's what I love that one. But there's also a lot of ones that I've read recently that I've been really into. Paradise Rot by Jenny Haval, and I hope I'm saying her name right. I believe she's Norwegian or Swedish. No, Norwegian. So the book was translated, and it's absolutely beautiful, which makes me think, how much more beautiful is it in her native language? That's one I really like. That's kind of like a fever dream type book where you're reading it, and you're like, what is going on? But like in a good way. Another one I love is To Be Devoured by Sarah Templiger. I think I'm saying that right. Um, another small but incredibly powerful book. The writing is so intense. I've never read writing like hers. And the book is it's pretty gross. Like, it's pretty extreme horror in regards to gore and grossness. So if you have a weak stomach, this might not be the book for you. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful. That's a good sell on me. <laughs> if you have a weak stomach, don't read this. I'm like, I want to read it now. Oh, yeah. And I, I can handle things. And, and even I was like, oh, oh, my gosh. But, like, I also loved it at the same time. It'll make you feel things. She's an excellent writer. So the last book I finished is also really great. It's called She is a Haunting by author um, Trang Zhao Tran. I apologize if I mispronounced the name. I believe this is their debut, and it's just beautiful. It's about an American slash Vietnamese girl who goes to Vietnam to visit her estranged father, and they're redoing this old creepy house. 
and it's supernatural, paranormal, but in ways that are also metaphorical for queerness and for colonialism. And it's just so, it's so good. Um, I will absolutely be reading anything this author puts out from now on. So that you've recommended some books for us, how about some overall authors that you use for inspiration or you just usually turn to that identify as queer that write in the horror genre? Yeah, there are so many. I mean, I think Clive Barker needs a special shout out because Clive Barker was queer and scary before it was cool. Yes. And I think that's just really awesome. And admittedly, Clive Barker's works are intense and not for everyone. But Mm -hmm. the fact that he has always just been so bold and brave and made such wonderful stories. Amazing. I feel like I'm so late because I just learned like a year ago that Clive Barker is a queer author. I had no clue. It's like, I'm like, where have I been? (laughs) Yeah, no, I don't think I knew right away either when I first learned who he was. But then when you go back and revisit a lot of the stories he writes with that queer lens, it it changes the game a little bit in a great way. Right. It makes me want to revisit Hellraiser and Candyman. I think Hellraiser specifically is known for its queer undertones, although I haven't actually read that one in so long that I don't want to speak to it. But I do associate it with that, so I believe there's for good reason. Are there any other authors that you use as inspiration or that you would like to mention? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I love female horror writers, too, because I also feel like my voice is a little more similar to them, and I like reading them now because, you know, growing up, there wasn't as many. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've got Helen Oyemi, who did White is for Witching, Carmen Maria Machado, who did Her Body and Other Parties. I think it's amazing that we're seeing this absolute explosion of queer voices and queer female voices and non-white author voices and people of all of the above categories. And I just keep wanting to try out new works from new authors because every time you read something, I feel like you take a little bit of inspiration and it's really magical. There's one book that I've just recently learned about that I really want to read, and it's by Harry M. Benchoff. And it's called Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality and the Horror Film. And it came out in 97, but it's a postmodern look at all of these classic horror films and how they went under the radar and how we were previously talking about how, you know, the queer coding and things along those lines. And it just seems like a really interesting book to dive into. And I know we've come further in the past 26 years since the book came out, but there's definitely a lot to learn from that. So that's one that I've recently added to my list. And I have a tendency to read more thriller than horror. And I just downloaded an audiobook yesterday called Bathhouse by PJ Vernon, who's a queer author. And it's about a young gay man who is a recovering addict who is married to a trauma surgeon now and living his best life. And he ends up going on a hookup at a bathhouse and it turns very violent. And he barely gets out alive. And and now he has to like fight to keep his world from shattering. And it's being considered a classic runaway train narrative. Oh, that sounds really good. I think it sounds pretty interesting. Mm Because you said how you'll go more towards queer women stories. I go more towards gay men's stories. Because we always kind of grab onto what we identify with the most. Absolutely. I definitely want to make a point of branching out more. I do have a very good friend who's also a queer author. And he's a gay man. His name is Brian Michael Ellis. um, And he's written a couple mostly slasher novels so there's still he kills and seasons bleeding um so if you those are good titles yeah he's he's a master of the slasher genre if you're looking for a unique kill brian will deliver it nice i will um, check those out as well 
There's one other thing I want to bring up, and I don't know if you've been to this site or not, but I definitely went into a deep dive before talking with you today because I just wanted to make sure that I knew the conversation I was getting into more than I realized I didn't. <laughs> but there is this one website called Gaily Dreadful. I don't know if you've heard of no, it. No, I've never heard of that. But it's G A Y L Y D R E A D F U L. But it's Gaily Dreadful bursting out of your closet. And it's run by a woman. Terry Mesnard, who is the owner and editor-in-chief of Gaily Dreadful, and she has a podcast and everything else like that. But it's a really cool site to go visit, and it talks all things pop culture from books to cinema that have to do with gay culture. And they also make sure every year they do a gaily helpful fundraiser to promote LGBTQIA writers in the horror community. That's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. So I definitely recommend uh, people go visit that site and check it out. And we'll put that in our show notes. Yeah, please. I'm going to go check it out as soon as this conversation is over. I, I found that today and I was like, oh, wow. And like an hour passed and I'm just reading all these articles and blog posts and everything. And I'm like, all right, that's one another podcast you should listen to after listening to ours, of course. Of course. <laughs> One of the things I really love about the horror genre is how it blends into other genres. And I think in general, genres tend to blend together. Romance and drama and comedy and an adventure. And I love a book that's kind of horror, kind of fantasy, kind of thriller, kind of mystery. I think blending genres together and not being such a stickler for this is the genre of this book really allows for more creativity in writing. And maybe I'm biased because I can't fit my book into a single genre, but I do feel like if by opening ourselves up and not saying this is simply a horror book or simply a romance book, you know, we, we can allow ourselves to express our stories and ourselves to the fullest ability. And I think that that's something we're seeing of a, a lot of with modern horror. A lot of the horror that's coming out is not just horror, but is horror and a memoir and every kind of blend you can think of. And I think that really is a good development that I'm seeing in the world. Well, Jamie, I really appreciated you joining me today. And I do hope to have you on future episodes. Oh, thank you. I would love to come back. This was so lovely. And that's how you book. This episode was transcribed and edited by me, Michael Hardison. Our logo was designed by me, Michael Hardison. Our theme music was produced by Jason Hilton. Please check out the show notes for a link to the accompanying blog post and visit us online at Wildling Press on social media or at wildlingpress.com.